let me open up to, to my message because you get the message from me this morning. And in the last couple of times that, that, that I've been up here and, and Nick has been up here, we've been talking about the whole, the whole theme of, of a fan or follower of Jesus Christ. And let me just clarify one thing, okay, because a couple of questions have come to mind. As I look at the scriptures, uh, there are two distinctions that are made. One of them is, is that we have those that believe and those that don't believe. Within the, or within, within the distinction of the believers, we have another distinction in there, in that we have the believers that are disobedient and the believers that are obedient. When I speak of the fan and the follower, I'm not speaking of the disobedient and the obedient. I'm, I'm speaking of, of the pretenders, the ones that really don't believe, as opposed to the ones that are followers and believe in Yeshua, believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And today, today the topic for us is going to be on, on intimacy. I think all the lessons have, have been dealing with intimacy and our fear of intimacy. So let me paint, let me paint the, the picture for you. Um, I had the scene already laid out being at the beach, but how close is the beach to us, right? So I'm going to take you to Sabino Canyon. Most of us are, you know, are, are acquainted with Sabino Canyon. So if you need to close your eyes, close your eyes. Picture yourself at Sabino Canyon. You get there, the tram is there, you get on the tram, and you're, you're going to go for a walk, but you want to you walk back. So you allow the tram to take you up there, down the road, and around bid, bridge three, maybe bridge four, you decide to, to get off, and you allow the tram to take off. You go on the side of the bridge, and you notice where, where the water should be running. There's just a little trickle. It's hot this time of the year, but... We've got a little bit of water there, so you, you step over to the side, you see a little area that has some sand there, and, and you, take your, you take your shoes off, and, and you've got your feet in the sand, and you begin to think about the lessons that we've been talking about. All the different things that Nick has talked about and, and that I have spoken on, making these declarations of whether you're, you're, you're just a, a follower, a fan, or whether you're a true follower, you know, whether you're this enthusiastic admirer or whether you're this totally sold-out, committed follower of Jesus Christ. And it starts to strike you in your heart as, as you begin to contemplate all the things that we've talked about. And behind you hear sort of the, the rustle of the, of the bushes. And you know somebody's coming through. And you turn around, and the Lord is there. And he comes up behind you, and, and you go, oh, you know, Lord, I'm so glad you're here. And he comes closer to you, he puts his hand on your shoulder, and he says, why are you so scared? Your head sort of falling down, looking at the ground, and you, so, and you tell him, Lord, you know I want to follow you. You know I want to follow you more than anything else in the world, but I'm thinking that as you begin to know me, you're not going to like the things that you find. And I'm thinking that you may change your mind about me and you may decide to leave. And you, your eyes drop to the ground and the Lord grabs your hand and he, and he grabs on tightly and he says, leave you like, like your mom did, 
leave you like your dad, like your husband, like your wife, like your kids left, friends that have, that have had relationships with you, but they've left, and you don't know why. And you nod your head affirmatively. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. And he says, don't you trust me? I do, Lord. I trust you. You're the most trustworthy person that I know, that I've ever known. But I'm afraid that when you really get to know me, you'll realize that I'm, I'm not really who you want. And I'll be left alone. And the Lord says, I've known you before I created the worlds. I watched you grow up. I know all your faults. I love you. I died for you. And I chose you. But Lord, I do trust you. Help me to learn how to trust and to know you. The assurance that God loves us and cares for us all will cause us to trust Him and trusting Him will allow us to embrace the intimacy that Christ wants us to have with Him. Doesn't come, doesn't come easy for you and me, but this is, this is the requirement. In, chapter, uh, in Luke chapter 7, oh, as a matter of fact, before that, Sam, if I don't look at the colors, I'll lose my spot. I have a short, a short clip for you to watch. And then we'll get into uh, Luke chapter 7. When Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, he was making it clear that his invitation to follow is not just for the religious elite or for the morally upright, for those who have their lives together. His invitation is for all of us who are hiding some things. Jesus said, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Anyone. Anyone is a pretty inclusive word. Anyone can follow Jesus. Anyone who's ever thought to themselves, I've gone too far, my stain is too big. Anyone who's ever laid awake at night and said, I can't believe what I've done. Anyone who's ever looked in the mirror and said to themselves, I can't believe what I've become. Anyone can follow. So in Luke chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. Chapter 7, verses 36 to 39. We should, we'll probably have it up on the screen for you also. And we read about two people who encounter Jesus on two very different paths. One of them, the Pharisee, was requesting him to dine with him. Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table of Simon the Pharisee, she went, she went to his house and she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept weeping and kept wiping them off with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, 
he said to himself, and he said this under his breath, he said, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of a person this woman is who is touching him, and that she's a sinner. Jesus is invited to eat at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Simon goes, um, Simon doesn't give Jesus a kiss when he walks in, though it was the custom. At the very minimum, he should have received a kiss on the hand. Typically, the custom would have been to wash the feet of your guests or to have a servant do it, and at the very least, to have a basin with water and a towel on the side so that the guests could wash their own feet. Jesus' feet went unwashed. Oftentimes, when you had a guest, especially a distinguished guest, you would give them some inexpensive olive oil so that they could anoint their heads. That was the custom, and none of this happened to Jesus. So Jesus is eating at the house of this pretender. And in the middle of their meal, there is this uninvited guest. You can picture this. There's you know, a, a low table, pillows wrapped around that table, and they're all, they're all reclining. They're all sort of semi-laying down. And this woman comes in. And the Bible tells us in Luke 7 that, number one, she's a, she's a known sinner. She's a woman of ill repute, right? She's a prostitute. Everybody. She had, she, had, she had a rep. She had a reputation for being who she was. She walks into the house, and she's weeping. She's crying, and she falls at the feet of Jesus. Her tears are dripping off her cheeks and unto the dirty feet of Jesus. And she recognizes one thing. Messiah's feet had not been washed. The mud was still there. They should have been washed by Simon, but they weren't. And she sees how her tears are making the dirt run off his feet. And she does something that in that culture was unfit for a woman to do in public. She took her hair and she let it down. When they were out in public, you always had to, women always had to have their hair up or covered. But she undoes her hair and she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair, wiping them clean, something that should have been done by Simon. And I don't think she planned this because I think she would have assumed that they would have been clean, but they were dirty. And with her tears, she washes his feet, and with her hair, she dries his feet. She begins to kiss them. She begins to kiss his feet. She's crying. She's she's broken. She pulls out a jar of very expensive perfume. Now, in those days, women of that sort used to carry small vials or small vials made of of, of, uh, alabaster, and they would have very expensive perfume in there because for their, their particular occupation, there needed always to be a good scent. So the, the, the perfume was at the ready. And she takes this entire vial and she breaks it open and she pours it on Jesus. Now, let's hold on to that moment, okay? We'll come back to the story in just a little bit. But this is just a short picture of intimacy. I'm not sure if if you know this or not, but when a baby is born, it tends to cry a lot. I'll give you a story. When my son was born, 
after just a couple of short weeks, he's a very colicky baby. I don't know who here of you ladies had colicky babies, but my son was colicky from the word go. You just mentioned it, and, 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 and that baby would cry. And I had no idea, my wife and I together had no idea, you know, how bad this could get. He would, he would pick the weirdest times to begin to get colicky. He would cry and cry loudly. And we had, we had no idea of what remedy or what to give them. Uh, we finally contacted our parents, grandparents, and we finally got. We've got, we got a good, um, we had a good remedy for my grandmother. And all we needed to do was, was boil this, this particular stuff, put it into his bottle, and it would begin to work. But until then, these are the nights that I would have with him. He would begin to cry. I would go into the living room. I had a couple of bean bags. I'd sit on the bean bag and I'd move him around. Bad move on my part. I would turn the radio on louder as, as his cry got louder. Lights would go on and off just to try to appease him in some manner. And it never worked. Gave him a bottle. Another wrong move on my part because it just, it just added fuel to the fire. But once we began to put that remedy into action, the colic went away. As we, as we went on, there were certain things that I began to notice about my son that I wasn't truly aware of. When he needed to be fed, when he needed to be comforted, when he needed just, just somebody to cuddle him, when he needed his diaper changed. But my wife knew. He would cry. She'd say, he needs to be fed. Duh, you know. Cry again. No, 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 he doesn't need to be fed. He needs his diaper changed. And I think he wants daddy to change it. <laughs> Despite my eagerness, you know, to, to change his diapers, one thing I do realize is that the relationship that my wife had and all mothers have is a very unique an intimate relationship with their sons and daughters. Men don't have that relationship that men, that women have with their sons and daughters. It is such a tight bond that, that a mom can hear a cry. We've all, we've all had this happen. You're, you're at a family gathering or you're just gathering with friends and, and somebody's baby begins to cry. And the baby begins to make the round from, from, from arm to arm Somebody, like a hot potato, waiting to see who has the magic charm to make that baby stop crying. And lo and behold, mama comes in through the room. All the baby does is hear her voice, and the baby stops. That's intimacy. That's being known, and that's knowing. And, and it, that, that particular bond just amazes me that God has for, for women and their children. In a picture, we're looking deep into, into intimacy. And until you or I have witnessed or been around that kind of a relationship, we won't understand intimacy. We could talk about the definition we could explain where the word comes from, how it's used, but we wouldn't really understand it. You would know just about intimacy. 
There's a couple of things you need to know. Three. The first one is that God knows you intimately already. The best biblical word for intimacy is the word know. And the first time that this word know is used is in Genesis 4. If you have your Bible handy, turn to Genesis chapter 4 and look at verse 1. If it's not already up there. The first time we hear about this word, and it's, it's the word yada. I sort of heckled at this when I first caught this. The word is yada, to know, to know intimately, to be, to be intimately acquainted with. That's the word yada. And uh, the old King James, as you look at chapter 4 in Genesis, states that Adam lay with his wife Eve. This is after God had created Eve, brought Eve to Adam, and he, he does the whole, wow, you know, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And it says that Adam lay with his wife. That's that word, no, that word is yada. The NIV translates the word um, a little differently because it puts it in context, and this is what we're looking at right now. It says Adam lay with his wife, and so we get a good picture this is the context of the word yada. Don't blush. This is not just another yada, 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 okay? This is yada between a man, a husband, and a wife. This is the intimate connection on every level. There's something to be said about the sacredness of sexual intimacy that when we first read in the Bible about sex, it is actually speaking of intimacy. Profound for me. Not, it, is not, it is not dealing with the physical pleasure uh, of the act. It is dealing with the intimate, emotional end of it. Knowing each other. So, there are other Hebrew words that could have been used. Words used in later scripture referring to the physical act, even procreation. But uh, here is this intimate connection. And I, as I was looking at that word, I was, I was impressed. From Genesis to, to Revelation... The word yada, 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 yada. And about every 70 or 80, then they'd have another word for no. And then they'd go back to yada. You know? And it's that word to know. One Hebrew scholar translates, translates this as the mingling of the souls. It's hard to understand this until we, we see the difference between a brand new couple and an older couple. Kyle Adelman tells a story about a date night that he had with his wife. He says, a few months ago, I went out on a date with my wife. And whenever we go out, I'm not allowed to face the TV. This is really familiar for me. I'm not allowed to face the TV in the room that we enter. Otherwise, it's not really a date for my wife. It's just her watching me, watching whatever's on TV. And he says, I just can't help myself. So because I'm not allowed to watch TV, I find myself watching others in nearby tables. Two different couples sat at each table, and one table had a young couple. They might have been newlyweds, but I'll bet that they were still dating. This couple was all over, they were all over each other, smuggled up close together, he says, snuggled up close together, talking to each other rapidly, they were making jokes, interrupting with one another while their food was getting cold, but they didn't care. They just kept talking, talking, talking. And next to them was an elderly couple. 
I'm guessing they had been married for decades. It's possible that they spent over half their lives together and they didn't say a word. I watched as they just sat there in silence saying nothing. I finally pointed this out to my wife and I said, look at that. Isn't that kind of sad? It starts off this way with this couple just talking and talking, can't get enough of each other, so much to say, so much to share. And then decades later, they have this, you have this elderly couple, and they're just sitting there in silence. How sad. And my wife said, no, no, I think it's kind of sweet. I kind of nodded in silence, trying to be agreeable, but I had no idea why this was sweet. He says, why is this sweet to me that they sit there quietly? I don't understand it. And then it hit me. It's sweet because they are communicating in silence. For them, just being together is ample space for connection. They're able to communicate without saying anything at all. I don't know know what they are saying to each other. Maybe, why is that guy over there staring at us? But they sat at their table and they were able to connect because they share and they have this intimate bond with each other. Now, you may think, you you may think that was... You may not think that the couple was actually able to speak to each other without speaking, but you understand their connection. You understand what it means for a woman and a man to have intimacy, to yada each other. But what I'm about to tell you may seem a little strange, may seem a little weird too. If you trace the usage of the word yada through the Old Testament, you'll find that over and over again, this is the same word that's used to describe God's relationship with us. Now, I love the Psalms. And I read the Psalms every day. This word had escaped me within the Psalms. Not anymore. He said, um, over and over, yada is the word that is used to describe how God knows and how he wants to be known by us. The same word, the same connection used to describe a man with a wife is used to describe how God, how God wants to know you and me. And this completely, trust me, this completely changed how I saw my relationship with God. Thinking of the day in and day out connection that I have with my wife. I'm embarrassed to look at how my connection is with God. But learning this taught me something. My relationship to Jesus is not just a weekend fling. It's not just a casual encounter with him. It is yada. It is a deep knowing with Christ and its intimacy. David uses this word yada about five times to describe, depending, uh, the old King James, you may find it six times, how God knows us in Psalm 139. And this is how he uses it. He writes, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know me and know everything about me. That's that word yada. He says, you know, you yada, you know when I sit down and when I stand up. You know, you understand my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know, you are intimately acquainted, that's the word yada, with everything that I do. And you know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. That's intimacy. That's how well he knows you. You know, you know, you know. 
God speaks to God, or David speaks to God in this intimate way, and it says that, God, you know how I feel. God, you know when I hurt. God, you know when I, want to, when I just want to escape. You know every word that comes out of my mouth before I even speak it. That's intimacy. In Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and the second thing you need to know, the first one you need to know, is that God knows you intimately. The second thing you need to know is that God wants you to know Him intimately. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us, who made us both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the barrier which is the law of the commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For though for through him we both have our access in one spirit to God the Father, so then you are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is now growing into, into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. While it's crazy that God knows us that deeply and intimately, it's even more crazy to me to think that God invites me to know him. God wants his soul to mingle with our soul. And for some wild reason, the creator of heaven and earth has offered this invitation to you and me. He's opened his heart and he said, I want you to know me more closely and intimately. More intimately than you know yourself. I want you to know my heart, to connect with me on every level that can only be reached through the most vulnerable intimacy. I want our souls to come together for both of us to know each other deeply and wholly. And when we read in the scripture, it sounds kind of poetic and beautiful, sort of like classical literature. I think people are comfortable reading like that until they would, well, we feel comfortable reading this when we're reading poetry or reading the lyrics of some song, it, it's, it's kind of cool. It's all right. But what happens when one of us actually gets a letter in the mail? I think for, for us men, most of us, we get a little freaked out with all the love yous in there. Maybe not so much with the ladies. I'm not sure. Reading that from a real person would kind of make us blush sometimes. It would almost seem too much. 
You may feel claustrophobic at the time, and you may not even get done with reading it. But that's okay. Many of us have, have a hard time knowing how to deal with intimacy. We can do pretty well at avoiding it, but when it's right in our face, some of us kind of lose it. And that's why it's not surprising that one of the most common responses to intimacy is fear. We run. As fast as we can, we run. Intimacy can be pretty scary because it involves allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And that means allowing, allowing me, allowing ourselves to be exposed, to be open. Many people fear intimacy with others and with God because they know that vulnerability and pain go hand in hand, and they do. When we open ourselves, friendships, relationships, they all take a risk. We have to open ourselves because we understand that there's always that possibility that we're going to get hurt. It's unfortunate that that's one of the things that first comes into mind. This is the world we live in. So many people have experienced betrayals, crushing blows from someone close to them. They've opened up, they made themselves vulnerable, and then someone lets them down. When we make ourselves vulnerable, when we open ourselves to God, we know He's going to find something that we're not proud of. Think of the sinful woman in Luke 7, a woman of ill repute. She knew her sin, and she knew that in, in every aspect that made her unworthy to even touch the Messiah. And because we've fallen short, we know that God's, that God's going to look into our lives and find things that He doesn't condone. So it kind of makes sense that many people would be afraid of that vulnerability. But followers know that there's so much more to be gained in this intimacy with God. We know that He's here to share with us and go through us with any pain that could possibly come our way. He gives us comfort. Knowing Him can only bring that true intimacy that we need. So you need to know that God knows you intimately. You need to know that He wants you to know Him intimately. And the third is that you need to know that fans always choose knowledge as opposed to choosing intimacy. In the church, we've often failed to embrace that kind of intimacy with Jesus. Instead, we've created a system focused around learning, unlike Simon and the other Pharisees. Admittedly, our default setting, if we were a computer, our default setting is probably set at knowledge as opposed to intimacy. Think about it. We, have, we love having Bible studies, many, many of which includes workbooks, curriculum, for working through a particular book of the Bible. Sermons are accompanied often with outlines that members can fill out and follow. A great number of preachers read their sermons, while, uh, which makes their presentations by definition a lecture, except for those who haven't been able to memorize them yet. Private Christian academies have been established all over the world, ranging from grade school to graduate studies. And all of them offer different courses that, that, that study God, theology, exegesis, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and we even do it with our kids. They go to Sunday school when they are taught lessons, often assigned with Bible verses to memorize. Some of them even compete in little Bible bowl competitions, all of which are won or lost depending on how many Bible 
uh, how much Bible knowledge they have, have accumulated and how fast they can raise up their hand and give the answer. But don't get me wrong. So studying the Bible, learning from God's Word is invaluable for us. Jesus referenced, he read, he quoted all kinds of passages from the Old Testament. So we have plenty of proof that he studied and cared for God's Word. And he did it with diligence. However, we can't expect knowledge to replace intimacy. Even though we often try. We try to substitute knowledge for intimacy because knowledge is so much easier. It's easier for us to say, well, I know about Jesus. But the issue is that he wants to know us. And that's where we find Simon the Pharisee. He knew a lot about Jesus and his teachings And he wanted to learn more. He called him teacher, emphasizing that he was most interested in learning from Jesus. But he doesn't open to Jesus, unlike maybe Zacchaeus, who was up on the tree. God invited him to his home, or Zacchaeus invited Jesus to his home. Salvation was found in the home. Zacchaeus repents, and he changes. This is not what's going on with Simon the Pharisee. Simon sees all that this woman does for Jesus. Her embarrassing actions, and the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 7, when this Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, he mumbled under his breath, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. The the next couple of verses after that, the master gives him a a parable. And it deals with love, sin, and forgiveness concerning this woman. After the, the Pharisee gives him the answer, Jesus turns to him and he, and he says, Look, he says, from the moment that I came into your house, you did not kiss me, not even on my hand. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet since she came in. You gave me nothing to wash my feet, and she is washing my feet with her tears. You gave me no olive oil for my head, And she has poured perfume on my head. And people can just see the brokenness of this woman. And Jesus turns to her and he says, Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Simon brought Jesus to the meal, but all he wanted was knowledge. He wanted to keep things shallow. Simon defined his relationship with Jesus by not washing his feet, by not caring to kiss him, by not being willing to anoint his head. But this woman, this follower was willing to open herself completely to Jesus, and she made herself vulnerable. She was willing to expose herself to the Messiah. She presented herself as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And this was her spiritual service of worship. She knew that she could no longer be conformed to the pattern of the world that she was living in, and that she she had already been transformed And her mind was being renewed already by Messiah. And and all that she did for the Savior, she proved God's good, God's acceptable, and God's perfect will. She wanted to know her Jesus, her Messiah. And she wanted to know, and she wanted Jesus to know her. So, question, will you know Jesus? And will you let him know you intimately? Will you embrace the close and intimate relationship that he wants to have with you? Because with that intimate relationship comes forgiveness and comes yada. Something only followers can truly experience. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
that we have such a Savior that knows us so intimately. You know everything about us, Jesus. You know when we step into something. You know when we step out of something. You know all our relationships. You know our good times. You know our ugly times. And you know those times that we just can't tolerate. You are such an amazing God that you know all these things about us. And all you want is for us to know you in the same fashion. May we accept that. May we turn to you knowing that forgiveness and true relationship comes to knowing you and knowing you deeply. And I would pray if there is someone here that has not made that connection with Jesus, if you have not until now, and I don't believe that you've been straddling the fence, I think you just haven't made a decision, that today you would do that, today that you would come to this Jesus and that you would ask him for that type of fellowship. And that you would recognize that he will save you, that he will give you a new mind, and he will give you intimacy with him. The intimacy that you've never had before. And you can trust him. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll be with you until the day he takes you home, and then forever after that. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.